Hi, this is Cheryl Prashker, and you're listening to Folkpot. This week's guest is Mary Gaucher. Mary is a Grammy-nominated American folk singer-songwriter and author, whose songs have been covered by performers including Tim McGraw, Dolly Parton, Blake Shelton, Kathy Matea, and Jimmy Buffett. She has won multiple awards, including at the International Folk Music Awards, the Independent Music Awards, and from the Americana Association. Her new book, Saved by a Song, is out now, and I can say without a doubt, this is a must-read. Welcome, Mary. Hey, thanks for having me on. Oh, I appreciate you being here. You know, I'm sure you've sat down over the last few months, even years, with people like the New York Times, NPR, so I super appreciate you sitting down and chatting for our FolkPod audience. Well, you know, the fact that you've taken a little interest in my book means a lot to me. Pivoting from being a songwriter to becoming an author, it's not a little small stream. I'm trying to cross the Rubicon here. It's an ocean of difference, and uh, I appreciate you doing this with me for the book. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people that we know in common, a lot of the folk community, folk alliance community, there's a little bit of buzz around the hood about this and everybody's recommending it from the house concert people to the venues to the singer songwriter on the street. So I think of what you've done here is pretty unbelievable. Was it your idea or was it a friend's idea or publisher's idea? Who first brought up the idea of you writing this book? It's a long story. It started with Yale University Press. Hmm. The gentleman who ran Yale University Press named Steve Wasserman Right. published a series of books called Why Something Matters. And so he had a book called Why Translation Matters, Why Architecture hmm. Matters, Why Acting Matters. And he wanted me to write Why Songs Matter. And so he approached me with that idea, and I thought I could probably come up with something. <laughs> wow. Well, you, you've definitely done that. Yeah. <laughs> I am not a trained songwriter. I didn't go to a music college. Uh, I don't know uh, how to read music and uh, notate it properly. So the best way I can get to why songs matter is through story. Hmm. And the more story I told, the less they liked the book. (laughs) They wanted (laughs) the book to be more theoretical than literature. Yale wanted a book that was scholarly. The uh, problem was, is that they asked me to write it. (laughs) So me and my little book about why songs matter did not end well at Yale. However, (laughs) about two years after that, St. Martin's Press got word that I was holding on to a book, and they asked me to write a proposal, and I did. And what they wanted was more in line with what I wanted, which is to tell stories and talk about songwriting. And uh, the more I worked on the proposal, the more it came alive for me that music and song have been transformative and even life-saving for me. Do you mind if I actually read a little quote from the book? I would be honored. Uh, You wrote, People ask me if I believe songs can change the world. My answer is yes, absolutely. Here's how. A song can change a heart by creating empathy. A changed heart has the power to change a mind. And when a mind changes, a person changes. When people change, the world changes. One song, one heart, one mind, one person at a time Songs can bring us a deeper understanding of each other and ourselves and open the heart to love. I mean, 
on a few occasions, this book had me in tears and giggling and going, yeah, and cheering and all within the span of like seven minutes, you know, <clears throat> folks, this book is not just a book about songwriting and it's not just a biography. You've taken the songs you've written and explained how you wrote them or why you wrote them or the circumstance behind the song, but then it becomes your biography. And so you open up your heart in a way that you don't even do that in songwriting. So was that an easy process? Was it a hard process? I mean, the beginning of the book is so intense, but you go right back to the beginning of your songwriting time, which is when you were at rock bottom. That's how you open the book. What was that like? Yeah, you know, the process of writing a book is really the crossing of an ocean. This took six years and I don't know how many rewrites to pull together. And once I decided the title of the book is Saved by a Song, it just makes sense to start with an explanation of why I needed saving. Okay. And so the beginning of the book is a story of me getting arrested for drunk driving and the beginning of my sobriety. At a young age, I would say. Fairly young. I think I was 27, yeah. something like that, 28. Okay, yeah. And in a world of trouble with alcohol and drugs, I was drowning. And so I got arrested, I got sober, and found myself after that at an open mic at a folk club in Cambridge. <laughs> and a light bulb screwed in, and it just, without any introduction, it became clear to me I wanted to do that. I wanted to get on that stage and sing original song. I had never written one. Huh. And I began my process of becoming a songwriter. You were already successful in another sort of area of your life. You were a successful restaurateur. Completely different world. I was in the restaurant business in Boston. I had done quite well and was the co-owner of two establishments. But the business that had done well was really no reflection of how I was doing as a human being. Huh. As a human being, I was not doing well. This is, I think, where music and song came into my life. It's amazing. To help me start to really recover. And I used music and song, and still do, as a way of making sense of the storms of life, hmm. really, if we're going to stay in the water and right. weather metaphor. Right. And so that's what happened. I went to an open mic, a light bulb screwed in, I decided I was going to be up on that stage at some point. A few months later, I had written a song, and I, I brought it there, sober, and <laughs> right. that put me on a 10-year journey of playing open mics and learning how to become a better songwriter and how to be on stage without being terrified. Some of your first songs were like, for instance, I Drink, which is a song that we all know who are in the community and know you well. That's sort of a biography right there. How did that come about? Yeah, that song, it was a really difficult process. It took a long time to write. I think we're already developing a theme here. Writing is hard. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but if I want to capture something really that I'm proud of, it takes time. I can't do it quickly. Mm -hmm. So it was a process, but I stumbled onto this idea in a 12-step meeting when some old biker said to some kid at the meeting who was trying to get sober, and the old biker had been sober a long time. He said, look, kid, fish swim, birds fly, drunks drink. Huh. 
Sobriety for people like you and me is the equivalent of asking a fish not to swim or a bird not to fly. That's why we go to these meetings. Wow. That's why we hold on to each other and pull each other up because we can't do it alone. And it really stuck with me as a great metaphor for recovery and also as a possible song. So I took that thing that he said and I started trying to find a melody for it. And over quite a period of time, it became a story song of me imagining how I would be if I had not gotten sober. Wow. Chicken TV dinner. Six minutes on defrost. Three on high. Beer to wash her down with. Then another. A little whiskey on the side. not so bad alone here it don't bother me that every night's the same I don't need another lover hanging around trying to make me change fish swim birds fly that song when I was around five years sober. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. I think that for those who will read the book, and I hope those songwriters who do read the book will uh, sort of relate to your experiences at those first open mics and how hard it was and how afraid you were and how nervous you were and how you just did it anyways. And I just commend you for starting at those open mics. You weren't 17, 18, 19. You know, you were a little later but early in your career and you stuck it out and it's amazing. And Mercy Now, the song Mercy Now, at what point did you write that one? Yeah, that one, I had moved to Nashville and I was a few years into absolutely dedicating my life to this art form of songwriting. I had made the decision to release the restaurants back into the hands of my partners, packed up a few things I wanted to keep. I gave away everything else and completely started my life over at 40. I moved to Nashville. Wow. At 40. Yeah, at 40. And my father was an alcoholic and he was in a wreck and I went to see him. And that song was inspired by me feeling so much emotion visiting my father who was no longer able to recognize me. Oh, my father could use a little mercy now the fruits of his labor falling right slowly on the ground his work is almost over it won't be long He won't be around I love my father 
He could use some mercy now My brother Could use a little mercy now He's a stranger to freedom He's shackled to his fear and his It's almost more than living will allow I love my brother He could use some mercy now A church in my country Could use a little mercy now They sank into a poison pit It's gonna take forever to climb out They carry the weight of the faithful Who follow them down I love my church and country They could use some mercy now Every living thing could use a little mercy now Only the hand of grace can end the race Towards another We hang. 
I started that song in uh, a little bitty motel room in Canso, Nova Scotia, sure. at the Stan Rogers Folk Festival. Yep. There's six or seven hotel rooms in the whole town, and I felt <laughs> like royalty because I was in possession of one of them. You didn't have to camp. <laughs> I didn't have to camp or stay in the dorm. Or yeah. I yeah. felt very, very privileged to have one of those rooms. And I still thank Stan Fest for helping me to that song. Being in that room, I think, was significant. Yeah. It gave me the space to do what I needed to do. And I finished it in uh, a hotel on the other side of Canada in Canmore at the Canmore Folk Festival uh, out near Banff. Cool. So that song was written in Canada in its entirety. Love it. Since I'm sitting here with a lot of snow surrounding me in Ontario, Canada, Mm. we will tell the fans that you are not sitting surrounded by snow in Massachusetts right now. You are actually in Florida. What did you say that was happening now instead of snow? Yeah, (laughs) I applied for and got a writer's residency in Key West. So I'm down on the island of Key West, Florida right now, and there's a cold front that's come through. And when a cold front comes through, they issue a warning down here. And the warning is for falling iguanas. The iguanas get stunned in the right. cold and they drop out of the trees. <laughs> I don't know if I could hold it together if I saw an iguana drop out of a tree and hit somebody in the head. But they wouldn't issue the warning if it wasn't something that happened. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Good. Good to know. Good to know. Please stay safe for the rest of your time there. An important part of the story is some of the iguanas down here are the size of cats. So they actually, <laughs> they're not little lizards. They're actually right, reptiles right. with claws. And there is an older population. <laughs> if they fall from the, the yeah. highest trees, they could do some damage. <laughs> oh my God, it's great. Well, we hope that you'll stay safe for the remainder yeah. of your time there. I've gotten me a helmet. I'll be fine. <laughs> great. All right. Don't worry, fans. Mary's going to be okay. Oh, Lord. Okay. Get back to some serious stuff here. I'm a little late on some of my Netflix shows, but while I was watching Yellowstone, don't you know, there at the end of the show and a very poignant part of the show comes your song mercy now and i was hooting and hollering with excitement that uh, you'd had that placement how did that come about yeah i have no idea <laughs> the uh, music supervisor found me I, I never ever have been able to figure out how to pitch my songs to film and television so right it's just not a world that i have any knowledge of 
Right. But every now and then they find me, and that was a yeah. extraordinary placement. It was. And it's brought my music to so many more people than would have found it otherwise. I'm forever grateful to the supervisor at, yeah. at Yellowstone that put my song in at the closing scene of season two. Yeah, and it was, like I said, quite the moment and perfect. Knowing the song, it was like, oh, they couldn't have picked a better song for this moment. So congrats on that. That was kind of cool. Thank you. Since we're talking about songs, there's a song that you wrote about in the book that you said is the song where you say it is the first song that sounds like a Mary Gaucher song. It's sort of that you found your voice, but it's written from an outsider's point of view, and that's goddamn HIV, which is obviously a very difficult subject and uh, shines a spotlight on a character rarely heard from. Yeah, you know, I work with songwriters a lot now. I, I teach, and I think that as a songwriting teacher, what I'm trying to encourage the songwriters I work with to do is to use what's inside them and find a way to the sound of their own voice. Hmm. We all imitate our heroes in the beginning because you got to start somewhere. Right. You're a John Prine fan, right? I am on that team. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So working my way through a lot of songs in the beginning, I just didn't know what a Mary Gaucher song was supposed to be until I wrote this one. Hmm. And it's told from the perspective of a gay man with AIDS before there was treatment for AIDS. And it's a rebuttal of a billboard that I once saw that was put up by a so-called Christian church that said AIDS is God's punishment hmm. for gays. Wow. And the character I created, it doesn't go into this long explanation because it's not a lecture, it's a song. Right. But I think the character is saying that my God damns HIV, doesn't create it. Hmm. There's a empathy for me from on high that I have to reach for now that I have been sentenced to death. My name is Michael Joe Alexandri. I've been a queer since the day I was born. My family, they don't say much to me. My heart knows their silence has gone. And my friends have been dying. All my best friends are dead I walk around these days With their picture in my head Spend my time thinking About some things they said And I don't know what's happening to me don't know what all of this means I don't think it means what it seems We used to party all night till the dawn I can't still Boys with their tight leather on in the down 
I was 30 years old when the sickness first came And it rolled through my world like a wind-driven flame Leaving ashes, memories, funerals and pain And I don't know what's happening to me The character to me is is someone that only I could have come up with because of my life experience. Right. I worked in a gay bar during AIDS. I lived in the community and was present for so much of that suffering and struggle. And I lost so many friends. And mm-hmm. I was young. They were young. And the voice of that song, it's not Mary Gaucher talking, but the character that I created is definitely in my voice. And you mentioned John. Yeah. John wrote from the perspective of a woman in a song called Angel from Montgomery. Right. Yep. So when John says, I am an old woman named after my mother. Right. You're on board. In that song, he is an old woman. Yeah. Named after his mother. And in HIV, I say... My name is Michael Joe Alexandria. I've been a queer since the day I was born, and I become Michael Joe. And that's the power of this art form. It builds uh, really strong empathetic bridges between the narrator and the listener. And the songwriter can go away and disappear. Right. But it's one thing to put those words down on paper and mean it in your heart. But you as a performer, because that's the other half of what it is that we all do. The performer is what sells it. We only believe it because it's the way you put it across. And that's hard to teach. Again, you came at it later in life. How did you find that voice and that ability to put across a song so that we believe it? Well, because I have to believe it. Yeah. The challenge is for me to raise the hair on my own arms. Right. And to bring tears to my own eyes. And when that happens, I know that that's going to happen to other listeners. When it happens as I'm working through a song, when I experience that deep resonance with the character, I know that that is transferable. Hmm. And if I don't experience it, I I know that I have more work to do. I have to feel it. Right. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Again, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but you talk about being adopted and all that you went through. But you don't mention at what age you found out you were adopted. Oh, I never was told anything other than that I was adopted. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there was no secret. I mean, since I was able to make sense of anything, they told me that they adopted me from St. Vincent's Mm -hmm. and uh, my brother as well. That was just a given. Okay. You have a song that you talk about in the book called Blood is Blood, and one of my favorite lines is, I have a hole in me like I was never born. Yeah, that's what it feels like. At least that's what I felt like. It was a hole that drove the addiction and a hole that drove the self-destruction and a hole that I had to figure out how to close without drugs and alcohol. Blood is blood. Blood is blood. Blood don't wash away. 
And this is where music and song, in a way, became a rebirth for me. I've used this art form to heal the whole, and it works. I don't walk around with that sensation anymore. Good. I'm glad to hear that. But you put so much work into this, so it's not just the song, but it's all the work that you put in to heal yourself. Well, exactly. And it's also connected to the reason I write songs. I write songs to try to get to the truth. Hmm. And in my effort to get to the truth, I end up getting to the real story. And this is where things start to get interesting. <laughs> because when I get to the real story and I tell it, I become empowered by that. And I am no longer the story. I'm the storyteller. Right, right. And that is where there's alchemy. There's something that I can't find exactly the word for, but it's the thing that turns the coal into a diamond. Hmm. Well, I have a group of songwriter ladies from my days in New York. We've been chatting on Zoom a lot over COVID and always talking about songwriting. And for a couple of weekends now, we've been talking about your book because everybody keeps finding it. So when somebody else finds it, we would talk about it again. And, and I know you say you've been teaching songwriting and I want to hear a little bit more about where, when, and how you do that. But if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Mary, look, I haven't gone through as much stuff as let's say you have. Can I still write a song? I mean, does anybody ever actually ask you that? You know, if I haven't gone through a terrible amount of good, bad, or indifferent in my life, can I still be a songwriter? Of course you can. And <laughs> I would imagine that there's nobody who hasn't been through quite a bit. That's the truth. You're right. It's impossible to be human and not suffer. It's impossible to be human and not have losses, to experience love, to experience awe. All of the things that us humans try to articulate and say, like Vincent van Gogh, look at that star. I'm going to paint it. I'm going to show you what I see. The starry, starry night. Do you see that? Hmm. The impulse to create art is to go, here's what I see. Do you see that? Here's what I feel. Do you feel that? You don't have to have lived in an orphanage, been a heroin addict, hung around a bunch of young guys who got AIDS and died and ended up in jail to have that impulse. <laughs> My resume is extreme, but not required. Right. I like that. I will report that back. <laughs> no, I do know. But I'm just saying, if somebody comes to your song school and is a little bit intimidated, I'm curious if anybody's ever asked that question. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that the drug, sex, and rock and roll has been debunked. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think we're pretty clear on how that story ends. <laughs> and the mythology of it was always a lie. No kidding, right? You are a better artist if you're sober. You're a better artist if you're awake and able to stay with the work and move it to a deeper place. I'm a big fan of patience and perseverance hmm. as a songwriter. And that's what I work with my students on is to also be gentle with yourself and be brave. It takes courage to be a songwriter of any worth. Yep. If you want to resonate, you have to say something. And the more you say, the more vulnerable you become. Yep, it's true. 
which is not always easy, which is why some people just can't do it. Or they almost do it, almost get to that place where, oh, if they had just gone to that place, boy, would that have been a song. And then they just can't seem to open up enough. They can't close the deal. Yeah. Interestingly, commercial songwriters who write as a job for the radio are not asked to do this. They're asked to do something else. Hmm. They're asked to make a product for a marketplace that right. fills certain specifications, the demands of the marketplace at the time. So that's just a different job. It's the difference between, I don't know, a, a chef-owned bistro and Burger King. Right. Huh. Both are food, but they have very different effect on the body. Interesting metaphor. I wanted to talk about the fact that we share a fiddle player. I don't know if you know, Michele Gazet. Yeah, yeah, Michele. Yeah, I play with Eric Anderson. I play percussion for Eric, who's been touring with Michele for many years and can't have him anymore because, well, you've got him. <laughs> I love what he brings to your music. And how did you meet him? I met him. He was playing with Andrea Parodi. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, from Italy. Yeah. I toured there in 2019. Have you uh, worked with him or worked with his venues in Italy? Ever since Carlo Carlini died, Andrea has been my agent over there. Oh, it's amazing. He kind of picked up the thread from Carlini, who was the first to bring over Good. these folk singer Americana songwriter types. Good. Yeah, he's legendary out there. He brought Towns Van Zant and Guy Clark, and I'm sure Eric worked with him for a really long time. I never met yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. Michele is a delightful person and a brilliant violinist. He is. Incredible. Incredible. The maestro is what I call him. Hey, oh, do you? <laughs> he's one of a kind. Glad you're working with him. I assume once this COVID stuff is over, you'll get back to playing together. Yeah, we just don't know when because every time we think we see a window, it closes. It's just as tough. I know. And now it's been years, you know. I know. And well, you've been doing your Sundays with Mary online on Facebook and you have Michele as a guest from time to time. And that's been a lot of fun to watch you do. And are you having as much fun with it? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love being able to, uh, even in times of these shutdowns, to connect with the fans around the world on these live streams and see the comments come in and just remain a troubadour without leaving the house. It's kind of yeah. amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I also want to definitely talk about your songwriting with soldiers. For those who don't know, Mary, uh, you spent quite a time working with veterans and writing songs with them. You put an album together and it's an incredible album. Whose idea was it to start that project? Well, I worked with the Songwriting with Soldiers program for a nonprofit for a few years, co-writing songs with wounded veterans. And after a while, I started thinking, you know, these are good songs we're writing, and I want to bring them out into the world. And I asked the director if they thought that would be a good idea. And they signed off on it, and in 2018, I put out a record that had 10 or maybe 11 songs I had co-written with veterans through that program. I've been a part of Songwriting with Soldiers for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. And so the songs I picked were uh, songs that I kind of think of them as the Civil War diaries of the war in Iraq and huh. Afghanistan. No kidding. And it's some pretty hard-hitting stuff. What our veterans, especially the women, but all of them, 
have been through is a story that uh, will break your heart. It's a tough, tough story. And the songs reflect their experiences out there doing their job. The healing that you ended up doing with these veterans cannot be put into words. Well, the title of the album, Rifles and Rosary Beads, song that you wrote with Joe, that's a pretty intense one. Yeah, Joe, Joe Costello. When I sat with Joe, he was in bad shape and he had a real rough go of it. He's more of a poet than a soldier. Huh. Rifles and rosary beads, you hold on to what you need. If morphine dreams, rifles and rosary beads, yellow smoke. Orange haze Blowing into my eyes Whistling sunset bombs I couldn't trust the sky Rivals and rosary beads You hold on to what Morphine dreams, rifles, The song, I think, got some of the poison out. It does this work. You know, earlier we talked about me getting some of the poison out by writing about my own struggle with adoption trauma. Yeah. And it worked for me personally, and I knew working with the veterans, it could help them. And I think the the transformative part happens when a song generates empathy so that listeners understand what's going on inside of you. And they're able to say magic words like, me too. Right. You know, like, I didn't serve over there, but I understand addiction. I understand... Abandonment that amount of abandonment and removal and inability to express how I feel, what you've captured, I really get it. And that helps. It helps a lot. You did so much work, especially during the course of the adoption part of healing. It would have been just as easy to say, oh, screw it. I can move on. I don't need to no, or I don't want to do the work. How do you find the courage and the strength to not only do the work and make this, you know, a healing time, but then you write about it for everybody to hear and see and you know about you. That's a kind of courage that I don't know if I could find. Well, I'm not sure it's courage as much as it is the sense that this could be useful in the world. And my overarching desire is to be useful. I read a interview this morning. It came from the New Yorker, and it was a sort of a synopsis of of the New Yorkers over the last couple of weeks. And one of them was an interview with Julia Cameron. Oh yeah, who wrote a book called The Artist's Way. Did that. If you're an artist, you've probably read it. And she said the book was inspired by a desire to be useful, hmm. and she put it together over a decade. 
and has really uh, helped so many blocked artists to become creative again. It's a really important book in my story. It was after I read that book, I decided to truly take on songwriting. I felt the pull <laughs> at the open mic in Cambridge, but then I picked up The Artist's Way, and it just it was like setting me on fire with possibility. Yeah. And so I wrote the book out of a, the same motive that Julia expressed, which is I want to be useful. I think music and song can be and are far more than just entertainment. Oh, agreed. Especially when we need them to be. Well, you wrote, if I may quote you out of the book, perfect timing, songs float in on the wings of a benevolent mystery to help humans with life struggles. That's what you wrote. I believe that to be true. And I think it is something that is of service to the songwriter as much as the listener. Although we don't talk about it, I, I, I have experienced tremendous relief when people tell me they relate to the songs. Yeah, of course. Well, I guess we all do as songwriters. You actually wrote a song, co-wrote with Beth Nielsen Chapman about the families and what they go through of soldiers called The War After the War. That hit. That was quite something. And tell us about that one. Yeah, that's a song written with six military spouses. Huh. Beth and I sat with these wives and they told us what it's like to be married to wounded veteran and how difficult it is to talk about and how they felt invisible. And so we just gave voice to what they were saying in this song called The War After the War. I, I love the opening line so much. It just dropped in my head like an iguana or something. It was amazing. It just dropped in, and there it was. I just said, who's going to care for the ones who care, for the ones who went to war? Yeah, what a line. I know. That was a gift, and we started there. Who's going to care for the ones who care for the ones who went to war? There's landmines in the living Eggshells on the floor I lost myself in the shadow Of your honor and your pain You stare out of the window As our dreams go down the drain Invisible The war after the war No purple heart I'm supposed to 
type three chord acoustic sounding thing and we were off and running. Mm. Again, I don't want to spoil the book because I want everybody to go out and buy this book. But the last story about Josh, and I'm not going to say a word to anybody because you just got to go read it. But if you don't cry after that story, I don't know. And yes, a song can change the world. A song can change everything for somebody. That song or that time of sitting down with you and writing that song changed that man's life. How does that make you feel? Useful, which is really gratifying. And if it wasn't me, it would have been another songwriter at that retreat. Josh was ready. And the work that we did was a privilege for me to be witness to. And I know that the heavy lifting was done by the song itself, that it gave him a chance to be seen. And that empathy that he received gave him hope. That's what he needed. It sounded like at that very moment. I mean, yeah. two weeks later, you don't know, right? I know. He had already planned his suicide attempt. Yep. He'd already tried it twice. And thank God I didn't know that at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he's a very different man today. And this is absolute proof that music and song can be more than entertainment. Looking back now. beautiful song and it changed a man's life and it, it 
absolutely can change the world. Have you been writing during the last couple of years of lockdown? Yeah, I've got a record coming out in June oh, yay. of songs that I've been working on over the last few years. Not soldier songs. Right. And I'm down here at this residency in Key West trying to pull the thread of another book. I don't know how much I'm moving the ball up the field here, <laughs> but I'm certainly trying and consuming a ridiculous amount of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Is the book sort of on the same line of ideas and thoughts as the previous book or something completely different? One thing I don't need to do in this next book is talk about how I write songs because I did that in the first book. So that's off the table. Right, right. So Saved by a Song ends with me calling myself a troubadour and just kind of hmm. slightly getting into a description of what that means for me. Okay. And I think leaving off there is a great big neon flashing light. I was like, well, there's your next book, kid. Pick up where that one left off and let's yeah, talk about yeah. what it means to be a troubadour. Another thing that I have done without knowing I was doing it. Isn't that interesting? And very successful at it. Well, I mean, from the outside, it looks like you're in a good place. And for instance, you got to play the Ryman Auditorium. You got to play the Grand Old Opry. I mean, what was that experience like and who invited you to be part of the Grand Old Opry? Yeah, I've played the Opry quite a few times. Mm -hmm. The first time I was brought on by Marty Stewart. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was amazing. And that was a long time ago now. That was during the buildup to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. He asked me to play Mercy now. Oh, wow. So that was during the first year of the George W. Bush presidency here mm -hmm. before the war started. So that's a long time ago now. And over all these years, I still play the Opry. Not a lot. It's something that I, I uh, enjoy doing and feel like I get away with something every time I'm on that stage. <laughs> well, but uh, that's been my feeling all along since I'm not... Well... You know, I, I am very self-taught. Right, right. So all of these things that have dropped in my lap and been incredible experiences, they amaze me, given that I'm literally making things up. Well, I mean, what did people do 300 years ago? There was no music school and theory classes and everybody was self-taught and songs were passed down from person to person, generation to generation. And I think your songs are definitely going to be passed down. That would be incredible. Yeah. yeah. I think I just fall squarely into the troubadour job description. I, I yeah. want to tell the stories of the time in which I live. Mm -hmm. And I want those stories to help people, maybe of future generations, understand this extraordinary and bizarre time. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you <laughs> for being a voice for the rest of us. All right. Hey, where can people find you on the interweb? Everywhere. Everywhere you look, there it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just type my name in. There's so much now that it's ridiculous. Pretty cool, isn't it? I'm pretty active on my socials and we'll continue to do the live stream shows on Sundays once I'm done with this residency down here in Key West. Awesome. New record comes out in June. Perfect. And I will be on the road again. I was just given the word that I'll be playing the Edmonton Folk Festival this summer, which <gasps> is exciting. Oh, yay. Oh, wow. I've been very lucky to be brought back there many, many times and feels like home down there. I love it. I can't wait. Fantastic. And hopefully there'll be some more. 
great. Any more Three Women and the Truth concerts? I don't know. Eliza and Gretchen are hunkered. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They're both very yeah. cautious around the pandemic. Yeah, and that's okay. Reasonably so. Yeah. So I think we're going to need to see more clearing out of the yeah. pandemic before they want to get back on the road. That's cool. I saw that at Godfrey Daniels and it was just, wow, what a night. Yeah, the three of us are a very good show. I think there's such mutual respect yeah. that we could just sit and listen to each other's songs forever and stay amazed. That's what it's about, yeah. Those two women are incredible yeah. songwriters. The three of you is an incredible evening. So when that happens again, I look forward to that and hope that more people will go out and see it. Thank you. Me too. I wish you a most incredible luck on finishing up the book and dodging the iguanas <laughs> and the new record coming out. And thank you so much for sitting down and chatting. This has been just a joy and I can't wait to share this with the FolkPod audience. So thank you very much. Folks, you've been listening to Mary Gaucher on FolkPod. Thanks for having me. FolkPod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer. And Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you next time.